This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is Martin Popoff, the incredibly prolific author of 115 music books on many genres of music, including heavy metal, classic rock, progressive rock, punk rock, and he's just released a brand new book on David Bowie. Welcome, Martin. Yes. Thanks for having me, Steve. Very cool. Well, over 100 books. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I always tell people that if it's your main job, I mean, most of the people I think that rock uh, write rock books, it's not really their main job usually, you know, and you have to be a fast writer, I suppose, as well. But yeah, when it's your main job, you've done a lot of interviews in the past. You can use those old interviews and you're just sitting around doing this and and, you know, the, the way the industry has gone, there, there's not a lot of uh, writing for magazines or, web, you know, websites, sure, but not not liner notes and uh, and all these other things that were part of the music business as well. So guess what I'm saying is it really is my main job. And, and you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was just mixed in with everything else. And it's quite impressive. Uh, and I believe this is your first book on David Bowie. Yep. There's a lot of bands like this that there was no way I could ever write a book on these bands unless, you know, a certain kind of structure or format came along specifically more than anything, uh, you know, something that is not interview heavy. You know, I, I pride myself on doing these rock biographies where I've talked to the band. 15, 20, 25 times at least, producers, album cover artists, everything. That's what I really like to do, you know, to say, okay, I'm bringing something fresh to the table. But along the way, 
you know, there's been a few different formats. We did this album by album series uh, with Cordo as well, same publisher. And then also what I did, which informs this a little bit, is I had to do this, uh, the Clash, all the albums, all the songs, and Led Zeppelin, all the albums, all the songs, where I basically wrote long reviews of, of every song by these artists. So now when I come to something like this, my gears are turning a little more to analyze, put on the headphones, listen to what's going on in the left and the right, all that kind of stuff, and put in a lot of opinion as well uh, with this stuff. A little more analysis rather than just sort of factoidness. It's an incredibly beautiful series, and this is the opening series. So your book is Bowie at 75. Can you explain to our listeners the concept behind this series and how it was pitched to you? Yeah, so so uh, it isn't my idea, um, which is great. I love when the publisher comes up with these cool ideas. So this one was, uh, you know, ostensibly around his 75th birthday. Now, they're not all like that. I've got an ACDC one coming that's ACDC at 50, and it's about 50 years since the first album kind of thing. But so what happens is, so this is Bowie at 75, and then uh, I was to come up with 75 career highlights or milestones. You know, some of those can be sad, like David Bowie dying, for example. So they aren't all they aren't all happy milestones, but they're big events in the artist's life. That was the fun part, coming up with the 75 things to write about. Uh, and then I actually partitioned them into, you know, a little bit of sections, which I which I thought worked kind of well. We've kind of felt like it made sense, like like he starts out. He's just a singer songwriter, kind of a kinksy kind of guy. He becomes a rock star, the, the big hype. Uh, then the musician period is more into the, you know, the creativity of the late 70s. The showman is sort of your uh, your let's dance and tonight and never let me down, you know, the massive tours uh, situation. And then rock icon. Every every one of these artists has that victory lap as a, as a you know a classic rock artist, and then at the end, uh, what's amazing about Bowie is is he really became as much of an artist again at the end as he was in the late seventies sort of thing. So I thought it was kind of cool to to find these these phases along the way. They're all chronological, and uh, and finding out okay which which couple fine tune it a little bit, get rid of this, get rid of that. Sometimes I'd think this huge song i'm just going to fold it into the album one so i'm moving them around a little too or combining a, a tour with an album or sometimes it's a tour on its own so yeah you you work it out that way you got you got math you got the math of the word count around it as well mm. um so you're thinking what do i have nothing to say about and what i have way too much to say on does it get it get broken into two it's interesting because I think the uh, sequential thing that you mentioned, people can read it sort of as a biography if they want, but it's it's not really a biography and it's not a picture book. It's just kind of this very unique take where you can learn a lot about the guy or if you know a lot about the guy, you can just kind of, you know, fire that passion again. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't like straight picture books. I mean, for my publisher in the UK, we do a lot of these visual biographies, but what I've started doing there is these really detailed timelines to go with them. Right. And, and intros and stuff. So, so I, I don't really like picture books very much when I'm in the bookstore, I just kind of flip through it and go, ah, I, I guess I'm done. I don't really need this anymore. Right. So it's great with the graphics, but yeah, it drops down and you've got these encapsulated stories all along the way. And it's kind of cool that it's chronological. So if you ever want to be reminded, of, of a certain event and and get all the goods in a nice, really compact, efficient bit of 400 or 500 words or whatever it is, it's right there. Well, let's talk about some of these entries. Um, number three, which is one of the best, most concise explanations 
of one of Bowie's most unique physical features. You know, having worked at a company that worked with Bowie, or at least his product, rather, I should be specific about that. You know, something as a fan you always noticed, and I'd heard vaguely what it was, but you really tell the story here of his eye. Yeah, so so this was just a childhood thing. I mean, they were already buddies and bands. This is George Underwood, and George Underwood actually went on and did, you know, design album covers for them and stuff, but it was just a stupid thing. They, they had, you know, there was a punch thrown on the school bus about a girl ostensibly, and, uh, it, you know, Either either George's ring or, you know, as David Bowie has said it later on in life, it, you know, he thinks he might have got his eye scratched by a fingernail instead. But what happened is it caused a problem where his pupil was permanently dilated. So it, the myth grows that he had different colored eyes. But the point is, is that, you know, more so the accuracy of it is, is that he had one that looked much blacker than the other one because you know the pupil was always dilated and it, and it caused him depth perception problems throughout his life kind of thing it became a real trademark for him you know the the alien the man who sold the world the occult all all that stuff uh, all put in with it and then on the changes to album cover it's like really kind of doctored i guess uh played with but yeah it became a real trademark of him this this really intense stare and he has really cool eyes anyways mm. um you know without the injury uh, and a cool look and a cool manner about him and, and all that so it it just became this uh this trademark you know physical thing he never hold it held it against george they remain good friends and stuff um uh, but yeah it was it was a pretty serious eye injury that he that he had and there was definitely a trademark and it would you know kind of tie in nicely with one of the songs i think most people equate their first taste of bowie which was space oddity and you know that song really resonates today after its release was in 1969 and you write that that whole story of that song is really complex yeah, so so there's there's kind of a weird situation where with his first uh, manager, they were you know the idea was they were going to do this 28 minute video, Lo- "Love You Till Tuesday," that was going to be a promotional thing uh, that was going to help him get signed, and this was part of that. So he was influenced by 2001: Space Odyssey, which is like uh, May 68, I guess that comes out. He records the song for the first time. I guess Tony Visconti didn't want to do the song. He thought it was a little cheesy. Gus Dudgeon uh, gets involved and they do it. So they record it. And then all of a sudden, like, there's the, uh, you know, the first man on the moon thing is happening. So it's recorded in June 20th, 69. And then July 20th, you know, man on the moon, right? And this, this has, you know, ground control to Major Tom and all that. And there's, there's a lot of like terms that are a little bit different that he uses in it, but it's a, it's a combination of the old acoustic David Bowie, the singer songwriter, David Bowie, and, and some prog touches and, and some, you know, pretty complex arrangements and, and changes all through. So it becomes a hit. It's kind of a novelty thing. It's just Johnny on the spot, right? As I think I put in the entry, it's like 80% of life is just showing up, uh, you know, so he, he kind of shows up at the right time with this idea it was a good idea and then later there's the complication of how they, the the second album gets reissued as space oddity and then the complication of it it becomes a hit again like three years later sort of thing four years later and then we get major tom again in ashes to ashes and everybody's right. sort of you know wondering okay so here's major tom's a junkie and you know it, it's really sounds like it's more about drugs and then there's projection onto the original where it's you know is it about drugs and it kind of is but is it also about space it's kind of that too at the same time so yeah it's got it's got quite a pedigree to it that song it definitely does you know you mentioned that all 22 albums would be in the 75 and 
if not the biggest, the most influential record of his career was the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That was one of the very first records I bought with my own money. I was 13, and, you know, it's incredible. And it influenced everything, glam rock, hard rock, rock fashion, sexuality. What was it about this record? Well, the funny thing is I get in a little bit of trouble with this, and I hope it doesn't really come through in the book. I, if, if it does, I, I made it kind of light, but I was never a big fan. It's not my favorite period of the band. I, I don't find it in itself uh, very uh, complex musically. Um, it's not recorded that well. I don't like the sort of rock and rollisms of it. And also, you know, I, I think I make this point in here as well. I, I think the whole look was kind of stupid. I mean, he, he had ma major, more cooler fashion things uh, that he did later on in life. But I, I think this does not age well with the mullet and all that. And the makeup looks kind of rushed and all this. And the clothes look kind of just creepy, right? They're a little twisted sister, you know, they're, they're, they're not drag, but they're just sort of odd right but anyway so but but he was right there at the right time with this whole glam thing and this whole glam thing i might even be doing a whole book on on the glam era but it's a it's a whole bunch of disparate things most of them pretty embarrassing and he's right in there kind of looking embarrassing at the same time too uh but musically speaking there is no glam sound Bowie's kind of central to the hub of the wheel spoke in just the entire package and also the way it kind of butts up against it's adjacent to T-Rex uh, at the same time. It was a great idea. It was conceptual. He got in the press a lot for various things around it. The look was quite, you know, stunning for better or worse. I, like I say, I think it's kind of an ugly look. Um, <laughs> the band themselves uh, dressed a little glammy and it was kind of an ill fit to those guys. Uh, even, even their body shapes and all that, they didn't, they didn't look right in those glam clothes, right? Mick and Woody and them, right? So <laughs> it's a record with kind of like weak rock and roll, but great acoustic songs, put it that way. There's that going to, it's a little retro. And I don't like the retro thing about any glam. Like retro was a big part of glam, right? There was a, there was a fifties rock revival kind of going on at, at the time. And that infused itself into glam somehow. And it, it got into Bowie as well. So yeah, I, I liked the Bowie earlier and then, and then many versions much later. I will only stand up for the fact that uh, Five Years is just an awesome opening track. I mean, I was hooked after that. I'd never heard anything like that, you know, either lyrically or production-wise. It was just so different. And uh, I just don't like Suffragette City and Rebel <laughs> Rebel in those songs. Or, you know, and, and as much as I try, as much as I just love the whole look and package of Mott the Hoople, I just can't get into Mott the Hoople very much either. <sighs> I love Ian Hunter solo, can't get into Mott the Hoople. Well, it's interesting because he would develop friendships with a lot of these people. And, and there are two in particular that feature each a couple times in your book. And uh, one, of course, is Lou Reed and the other is Iggy Pop. What is your take on their relationship with these guys, both artistic and personal? Because it lasted a long time. The cool thing about David Bowie is he is such a, uh, an enthusiastic lover of people's creativity. So he loves these creative characters and he's fascinated by the whole thing. By the time he met Lou Reed, Lou Reed was already a legend. You know, he's, he's just going on to a solo career, but there was the legend of the Velvet Underground and, and there's the legend of the Stooges. The other funny thing about this whole glam story, right, is that America had this weird, weird 
twisted take take on the glam thing. Um, you know, as, as the as the narrative always goes, is that they were never as comfortable with androgyny as as England or whatever. But kind of played itself out in in a funny way in that Alice Cooper was this sort of tough version of glam. Lou Reed was this tough version of glam. Iggy Pop was this tough version of glam. At this point, you know, the Stooges. We, you know, we had a we had a '69 album and a '70 album, so that's way in the rearview mirror. Iggy's down and out for a couple of years, and then he comes back on CBS, and and there's this this raw power situation that, of course, David Bowie gets gets involved in. But the legend of Iggy is is again something that was set up in the past, and he he's kind of like a dangerous you know, what's going to happen with this guy, crazy personality. Lou Reed's kind of the same way. He's, he's surly and grumpy as well. And, uh, and David Bowie's just fascinated by creative characters. And, you know, there's a little bit of this, oh my God, New York city, the glamour, you know, the, you know, head across the pond, you know, to this Mecca of culture, Andy Warhol's all wrapped up in all this as well. So yeah, he gets involved uh, on a production level with Lou Reed, but more importantly, I guess, Rob Power is now going to be recorded in the UK and and he's involved in the in the mixing production end of it doesn't turn out for anybody I mean it's when they do the record themselves it doesn't sound great when David Bowie remixes it it doesn't sound great it doesn't even sound all that much different I interviewed actually both Ron and Scott Ashton and and talked to them all about those sessions and they and they were saying things like uh you know oh it's it so strange being in there we were kind of left to our own vices and i remember one memorable thing uh scott says was like it was like we were at the on the starship enterprise and it's like beam me up scotty and we're <laughs> turning all these dials and all this stuff but yeah it's a it's essentially a very crusty noisy not a lot of bottom end very screechy a lot of mid-range the highs are there, but the highs are just noise. It's not. It's not highs because the because the cymbals sound scintillating or anything like that. And uh, and yeah, David Bowie was called in to kind of rescue it, and it didn't really rescue it. Damn, another formative record for me. Um, oh, I love it. I love it to death. I mean, yeah, it's I, absolutely. I've I've had it since I was a kid too, and I I just love it. Speaking of formative records, David and Iggy would relocate to Germany for the so-called Berlin years, which was hugely important, both artistically and an influential trio of records and a classic pair for Iggy. That might be my favorite period of Bowie. Yeah, it's it's my favorite period of Bowie. It's not my favorite single record of Bowie, but uh, I love that period. And uh, and it's it's funny, um, you know, station to station and lodger. They almost feel like they're the 50% part of the Berlin thing, but neither of them are really in there. The first one's not in there at all. And the second one's really like a Switzerland record. So, so um, it's really just the two in there, but you get two of the greatest Iggy pop records out of it as well. The, the two that are absolutely the most critically acclaimed, probably frankly, the two most critically acclaimed David Bowie records too. And uh, you know, all, all this kind of black and white album cover art, you know, it is, it's got this, it's got this aesthetic to it as well. So yeah, they just move there. They're ostensibly trying to clean up, you know, and they don't quite really do it, but they're living in an apartment and they're going out for dinner and there's hookers and all this <laughs> stuff. And, but they have this great, creative situation where they're learning and and you know breaking new ground with synthesizers and technology and they're kind of like out craft working craft work uh at the same time and, and long instrumental passages and things 
and and David Bowie even goes on tour with Iggy and he's just his keyboardist. You know, he keep, keeps quiet off to the side and plays keyboards kind of thing. So they're all involved in all this together. And there's a there's a little bit of a weirdness there with uh, getting the first of the Bowie albums finished and then and then, you know, telling RCA to delay putting out the Iggy one so mine can come out first and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you get two of the greatest from both of those artists at that time. Definitely the most licensed Iggy record is is one of those two anyway. Um, for oh, you mean you mean to ads and stuff with with uh, Lust for Life, oh my the song, right? Yeah. Passenger maybe a little bit as well. Yeah. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. We're speaking with Martin Popoff. He's written a ton of music books, and he has a brand new book that's just a beautiful book called Bowie at 75. Bowie's final couple of albums I thought were pretty fantastic and perhaps a bit underappreciated by maybe the masses. They were, you know, Heathen, Reality, and especially The Next Day and Black Star, which would be released on January 8th, 2016, which was his birthday, by the way, and just two days before Bowie would pass. What are your thoughts on that final run? I love that final run. And that, and that's why we called this one. What, what, what do we call the artist? I think at the end, um, but yeah, I love that run because I, I think he was just such a pure artist again at that point. Bowie is one of these artists and there's a bunch of them who, who went through a bunch of phases and because he's such an enthusiastic lover of creativity and such an early adopter of things, he would early adopt into situations and then they might not date so well uh, later on. So, so he, he had these things that, that, you would say, oh, that's the blank blank David Bowie album. And that's his mm-hmm. album doing this. And that's the one doing that. But at the end, it's like all of that is put aside and he's just creative. He's just doing these great albums. You know, I'm I'm I, I'm not supposed to say this either, but I'm a big fan of the Hours album. I love Hours. Uh, Hours is it's it's acoustic and melodic. And, and it, you know, apparently, you know, everybody's kind of thinks it's just too mainstream. Right. Um, but at the end with the next day and, uh, you know, and that that incredible album cover with the heroes and, and it's actually crossed out on here and then and then covered with that block, a white block with just the next day in it uh, in, you know, to sort of a Helvetica font, I suppose. And then on the back, uh, you know, they they did the same thing where. Uh, they covered up all the credits and 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 put the song titles of it on. So you're right. I mean, I the next day did kind of come and go and, and didn't get a lot of uh, exposure. But Black Star definitely, for obvious reasons, got a lot of exposure. And I think uh, the ones just before it are are just sort of collections of songs. They don't have that extra kind of like uh, really strong theme running through them. But Black Star certainly does. It's traditional instruments, but they're played in kind of a krautrock way. They're they're kind of like a, like a prog rock mixed with classical a little bit, and it's it's you know. And so many of David Bowie's collaborators throughout the years are not known people, and this is not a, you know a particularly known bunch of people as well. But they make this music that is uh it's all 
conventional conservative instrumentation, but what they write is not very conservative. And to me, it, it just always had that old King Crimson mm. Vandergraaf generator Krautrock vibe to it. And yet it's very smooth and accessible, a little profane here and there. Like the lyrics are, they're, they're pretty punchy lyrics. But I think the last one uh, definitely is the one that really does have a vibe and a sound to it. And again, it's just not linked to any era, any movement. It's just uh, it's just this timeless, strange new way to take conventional instrumentation and make a record. It's a hell of a way to go out too. But now since you brought it up, I have to ask, do you have a take on the cover of the next day? Because I've stared at that a lot and you know, things pass back and forth in front of my mind, but I don't really think I know what he's trying to say there, if anything. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure either. I mean, it's brilliant in that no one has ever done this before. Um, I couldn't think of anything even remotely similar. But yeah, I, I think it's really cool. Um, I, I think it's it it might be a little bit of uh, you know, the um a commentary on being the classic rock icon. So every artist has that part where you're expected to play the hits all the time and you're going out there and you're the jukebox and your new music, you'll put it out, you'll go on tour, but no one really cares sort of thing. So it, it might feel a little bit like that, like an aggressive, uh, hey, this is my new album, not right. not heroes right, right. Uh, kind of thing. But yeah, I, I just thought it was brilliant. And, and you know, the fact that it's monochromatic is black and white uh, throughout. That was my take that maybe he was blowing up the myth, you know, or, you know, starting over. I don't know, but it was eye catching for sure. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about your writing and what's really interesting. I mentioned before the length, there's a lot of brevity. It's very targeted and it's not a thick, massive bio. So I'm curious if, you know, because that's what you usually wrote, did you have a different strategy or, or was there a word count that you shot for? Because the chapters are pretty consistent in terms of length. Yeah. So the idea when, when Dennis and I collaborate on, on any books is, um, you know, generally I'm given a, a rough word count, you know, with maybe a 5,000 word range sort of thing, um, because they've, they've worked it out how many pages they want it to go, you know, how, how, you know, is it going to be two pages per spread, all that kind of thing. So I take that word count and, uh, you know, realize that, okay, I've got to write an intro, um, you know, do you want me to do a discography or what are the back bits? And, you know, we ascribe a few words to the back bits and we say the intro a thousand words, you've given me the total, take what's left, divide it by 75. <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to hit. Right. I'd go over by 200 and then I go, oh, okay, well, I better write a short one, you know, just to catch up. And then I keep checking it all the time. Like, okay, how long is the book now? And so, you know, that, that 600 words would come down to 580 on average for the remainder ones and then down to 547 and then go up back up to 576. And so I just adjust all along the way just to keep it, keep it in line and, and give Dennis the amount of words it's supposed to be. So you're not only a writer, but you're good at math, which is yeah. impressive. Well, you, you have to be, yeah. <laughs> and and it's very painful at times because, you know, sometimes my my original version that I have to pare down is 1,400 words. But I know I'm writing it long and knowing that I've got to take stuff out. So you could spend as much time trying to deal with the challenge of keeping a certain story down to 600 words as you as you can coming up with those 600 words. Right, right. Well, you mentioned Dennis uh, from your publisher, and graphics play a huge part in this book. There's everything. There's you know live shots and publicity photos and all this stuff. And I, I do have to say, 
I found the period piece advertisements from the labels quite incredible. I thought they provided some really creative marketing, especially Ziggy, Aladdin Sane, Thin White Duke. And they still seem pretty cutting edge. I'm curious about your thoughts on those. And, and do you recall those when they were new? Yeah, I, I love those things. Uh, I, I have ads like that throughout all my books. And, and one of the coolest things I ever did was uh, there's, there's a buddy here in, uh, in Toronto who's like probably the key wheeler and dealer, uh, you know, rock memorabilia record guy. He puts on the record shows and stuff. His name's Akeem Boldarev. And, uh, you know, I bought a lot of stuff from over the years. But the coolest purchase I ever made was I think I paid him 500 bucks. And I, I ended up with these big plastic bins. It was like 600 copies of, uh, of Melody Maker and Sounds and Enemy from about 1969 through to 1980, right? And I just loved going through those. I loved them for the research purposes. So now I have a collection, physical collection of 4,000 of those ads. And they've all been, you know, they've all been scanned. So they're in the computer as well. So every time Dennis and I do a book together, you know, one of the things I feel like I do contribute is, is I send them a bunch of ads for almost everything. Right. I mean, most of them are, are, you know, black and white because they're from the, the weekly or bi-weekly music papers. I'm looking at some of them now. Yeah. The rebel rebel in front of, front of the, uh, the brick wall and stuff. Some of them are color. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they're pretty cool to see. Um, it, it's nice when you see kind of extra text, uh, hype text, and, and you see which way they're kind of uh, trying to steer things. Um, and it looks like RCA was pretty good at, you know, doing a lot of Bowie ads. So yeah, it's always nice to have that stuff in there as well. Um, I love the 45 sleeves and all that as well. Exactly. But I, I could imagine like one day just doing books of just the ads. Oh, I'm in. Uh, especially nowadays with the album covers seemingly gone. I'm guessing these are definitely gone. I mean, you just don't see full page ads like this. I mean, I guess no one reads magazines. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. There's no more rock magazines anymore. But creativity actually went out of those ads starting really at around 1980, 81. Well, actually, the the ones in Rolling Stone were, they persisted really nicely until about 1987 sort of thing. So there, you know, the American record companies for the big color ads that they would stick in Rolling Stone, those kept having some creativity for quite a while. But um, in generally speaking, the creativity started going down at, at around the end of the 70s. And they, they just got pretty perfunctory, you know, the album cover, some text or whatever. Right. I remember I it used to just drive me nuts when I'd get my circus subscription. I I, I used to hate when you'd get the ads and, and they would just like block over the, the art on the thing and then stick in just like <laughs> the next day kind of text on, on top. And, and uh, you know, they, they'd ruin the album cover for you and ruin the ads sort of thing but uh yeah i think mtv killed a lot more than the radio star but um right <laughs> you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon media we're speaking with martin popoff he has a brand new book out called bowie at 75 it's a gorgeous book um and let me just ask you a couple of final questions what did you think when you saw the first prints of the book did you have a gut reaction like wow or yeah, it, it is an amazingly beautiful book. Um, you know, first I would get the PDFs and stuff, and I was just floored by 
how great the image gathering was by Dennis and how it lined up with everything. And, you know, I, I didn't get asked a lot of questions because he's really smart himself and he knows what to do. You know, everything's on point. You know, the pictures throughout here are as important to the narrative as the words, as it all goes together. But then when I got the book, finally, you know, the, the front cover is all using specific neon inks and all that. The design is beautiful with the picture like that. It's got a couple of fold out things. It's got this illustration of Bowie and all all the um you know the different costumes that folds out the timeline folds out it's got a little envelope with a with a repro poster in it and a print great poster and then the whole thing shows up in a in a you know a plastic case with uh fur felt on it uh you know and uh, and kind of a screen printed picture of David so it all it all goes into this nice slip case um it's hands down the nicest book anybody's ever done for me so well, and yours is the first in a series. Elton John is out, and I know Alice Cooper is coming out. I'm sure that feels great to be the first for this series because it is really beautiful. And you, you've written a lot of books. Final question about a lot of bands and artists. So I'm going to give you a lot of leeway here. And given the baseline of 75 years or 50 you mentioned, is there an artist that you'd like to throw out deserving of an entry like this that you might like to write again? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and we, you know, I bat ideas back and forth with Dennis quite often. Uh, he's, he sometimes suggests a band to me. I suggest a band to him. It's fun for both of us to like go, Oh, it's been 50 years since, uh, the, you know, the debut album by this band or whatever. So some of them are like that. We've got a 50th anniversary book. That's not part of this, but it is, it is a 50th anniversary thing on, on uh, dark side of the moon mm-hmm. and quadrophenia. So I, those have been long finished and turned in. So yeah, there are certain bands I want to write on, but having written so many books, there's a whole lot of bands that have myriad different ways that they're disqualified from me doing, you know, something on, uh, or I don't want to even, uh, you know, I've written six rush books. It's too many, right. I don't want to do any more. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really fun looking for those and planning for, you know, 2024 and 2025 and and looking forward and we've got a a few irons in the fire that you know he's and then he's got to go you know talk with his people and figure out which ones he thinks will sell well enough uh to 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 make it worthwhile well his name is martin popoff and if you look him up you're gonna see a ton of music books you do have a website that people can go to correct yeah, martinpopoff.com. They're all listed in chronological order, and there's or, you know, PayPal ordering buttons for the U.S. International Capital, full descriptions of them, pictures of them. And uh, that's a big part of my my income is, is being a mail order guy of my own stuff. So I have collections of everything that's in print, and I sign them and send them out. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the fun parts of this being actually a retailer of Martin Popoff books. Well, the Bowie at 75 comes out at a perfect time. All of our listeners should consider that for the Bowie fan in your life this uh, this holiday season. It's a very special book. Beautiful. And uh, congratulations, Martin. And thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you, Steve. This was fun. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. 
please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.